Hello everyone, my name is Adrian Wong. I'm the chair of the Editorial and Publishing Committee of the ESICM and welcome to yet another episode of an ESICM podcast. And I'm joined today by a very good friend, colleague, teacher, mentor, the works, uh, Philip Roller. And I'll let Phil introduce himself. Um, hey Adrian, uh, thanks for having me. Um, I'm a community ICU doc in Montreal, Canada, Santa Cabrini Hospital. Um, and yeah, obviously a, a long-term fan of, of international collaborative and, and idea sharing. And I think that's uh, certainly in the, has been really um, exploded in the last you know, decade, but certainly in the COVID era, I think it has, has really you know, come to the forefront. And I think we've, we've done a lot in ability to, to disseminate information and, and get really great ideas and, and help each other across the planet. Indeed. So glad to be a part of it. Really, really good to have you. And one of Phil's um, area of interest is that of managing the circulation and hemodynamic, especially using ultrasound. We'll come to that in a short while. Well, recently the ESICM had a couple of webinars centered around hemodynamics, the use of vasopressors, and um, the use of what cardiac output monitor to use. So I thought it'd be really interesting to pick Phil's minds on these subjects. But let's start off with cardiac output monitor. Um, we had um, Professor Monet and Professor Sugo talk about the different types of cardiac output monitors available, in particular those for measuring blood pressure. Phil, what's your practice? What's, so imagine the bog standard patient that comes to the emergency department in septic shock. What sort of monitors do you tend to use from the go? Yeah, so I'm going to go with assuming that, you know, we're talking about the sicker ones that are needing, you know, good doses of pressors and all that stuff. So, you know, anyone on any more than a smidgen of, of norepi uh, gets a femoral arterial line. Um, <clears throat> uh, obviously, everyone gets a, a comprehensive bedside ultrasound exam, sort of a almost head to toe type of thing. Um, to me, one of the most important things when I first get to the bedside of a patient is actually generally feel the skin a little bit everywhere, you know, um, not just extremities, because sometimes for, you know, whatever reason, people sometimes have cold extremities, but kind of a general skin exam. And, and to put it in my perspective, to essentially get my, my SVR slash SVR, you know, bedside assessment before anything else. And I'm going to compute that in with what I see on the bedside ultrasound to figure out, you know, is this, you know, is there a lot of recruitable peripheral volume? Um, that's a big thing for me. Uh, that's gonna lead me towards the more earlier, heavier pressor doses. Um, and I'm gonna look at my cardiac function, my, my filling status, my IVC, uh, and determine, kind of get a, a gross idea where, where I'm headed like that. Um, that would be for you know a good proportion of them. Now, if you're starting to get even sicker, like my sickest you know, COVID patients, let's say, um, nowadays, most of them will get a PA catheter. Um, it's taken, you know, a little while. I've been, you know, if we look at it historically, uh, and, you know, when I started in the ICU in 20 years ago, you know, and I, in my first phase of really, you know, getting into point of care ultrasound initially, when I was, a, when I was a, you know, resident, a fellow, um, I would, I would want to put in a Swan Gans catheter and anyone who had a pulse essentially, um, and, and uh, as, as long as I could. And uh, at that time, I for sure hadn't mastered point of care ultrasound. And I think when, when, when all the things came around the swans, I still had some reservations. And I remember going to, uh, you know, going to, uh, I think it was in 99 or 98, 
going to one of the SCCMs where there was this poll on, you know, various, you know, PA catheter values. And we were all answering with wires and little buttons because no one had smartphones then. And, and it was, you know, pretty impressive that the percentage of people getting the quote unquote, you know, even the basic right answer, let's say, you know, you know, low cardiac output, low pressure, low SVR, and people would be doing different things instead of, you know, maybe using vasopressors, but anyway. So those answers were all over the place. So I already had a feeling that, you know what, the moratorium on the PA catheters was largely based on people not really doing the right things with the data. Mm-hmm. But anyways, I, I still went away from PA catheters and, uh, and was really focused on bedside ultrasound. But, you know, I, when I got more into, you know, RV dysfunction and, and things like that, I realized, you know what, actually combining the pressure measurements and the continuous monitoring with um, bedside ultrasound, to me, it makes for a really powerful tool when you combine both together. So, um, and the, uh, the continuous cardiac output, I think in the, the modern swans is, is really interesting because, you know, in the last year or so of using a bunch of them, you see that cardiac outputs are all over the place in the course of the day. Um, and the healthy, even in patients who let's say still have a, a PE catheter when they've gotten already better or off pressors and are mostly using it for just monitoring their PA pressures, you know, to do with their, their ventilation and all that. Um, the cardiac output's all over the place. Like people can turn, sometimes they're sleeping, maybe they're having a good dream, bad dream, who knows, cardiac output will bump up down. Mm-hmm. And back in the day, we would have taken decisions based on these, you know, point numbers that seem to be just all over the place and are not really, I think, the, I don't think you can reliably, you know, make those decisions. Sometimes like it looks, you know, cardiac index looks kind of low, patient's totally fine, warm, perfused. Mm-hmm. And other times, you know, cardiac output's high. And patients, so I think you, you all have to piece it together in context with everything that you're doing. Uh, I don't think you can use threshold science for, for cardiac output. Um, I think obviously in this pandemic, you know, um, I've made it sort of an informal rule that if we're using any kind of um, pulmonary vasodilatory drugs in the ICU, we should have a a PA catheter in to to measure the, you know, the impact of our therapies. So, so that's kind of what we'll do, you know, I think in terms of monitoring, um, it's, it's um, femoral arterial line, uh, PA catheter, and then I also like to use oximetry, so tissue oximetry, cerebral oximetry, mostly looking at trends. Um, yeah, that's kind of my, I, it's not like I have more tools than that really at my disposal. So. There's, so, there's just so much pearls of wisdom and information in what you've just said. But I'm going to take it a step back now. I've certainly in Europe, I think there's a pendulum swing when it comes to the PA cashier. We seem to be, uh, we it fell out of favor quite considerably and it's sort of slowly coming in, back into practice for select patients in the right group of patients. So the ARDS patients, the one that you suspect has got RV, so on and so forth. In your practice, in your department, amongst your colleagues and what have you, is the PA catheter the go-to cardiac output monitor? What about the um, sort of less invasive ones, such as the PICO and LITCO and things like that? Yeah, we don't, we don't have, um, we used to have the flow track, mm. um, but it was essentially like discontinued, I think, or I forget what. Um, but I think that, you know, given that we have the PA catheters, we might as well use that, but we don't have a non-invasive one. I would have loved to try some of the, you know, some of the, you know, bioimpedance type stuff. Mm-hmm. I, I think that that's great, um, but I haven't had the chance to, okay. to do so. Uh, 
the other thing that you've mentioned in your um, opening was the, the concept of cardiac output and flow as opposed to pressure. I think we've also moved from intensive care practice, moved, we, we seem to be moved away from the idea that good pressure equals good organ perfusion onto flow. Thoughts, comments? Yeah, but I'm, I think if we, um, if we all collectively went back to our physics professors and told them that what we're trying to assess is you know, the flow uh, in these capillary beds, um, but then that we told them that we're measuring, you know, we're trying to use a variable that is that sits before the resistor to said, you know, pressure and flow that we're trying to measure. I think they would collectively smack us upside the head and say, like, this makes no scientific sense. You know, obviously, for us to measure actual, you know, precapillary arteriolar pressure is is clinically impossible. But we have to at least have, you know, that concept in our mind that measuring large artery pressure, the more vasoconstrictor you're using, the more you get an uncoupling of that with the microcirculation. Mm -hmm. So, you know, and I think some of the more interesting examples of that sometimes is, uh, relates to the use of, uh, for instance, of uh, ephemeral arterial lines rather than radial arterial lines. Mm -hmm. um, and, I, you know, a, a decade ago or so, I remember a couple of distinct cases where, you know, we're using a radial arterial line and we're ramping up the pressure. And, uh, and on the radial, it's like 95 or something like that, systolic and patients modeled and looking terrible, thinking, oh, it's, you know, it's, it's terrible sepsis. And then put an ephemeral arterial line and oh, oh, lo and behold, the pressure is like 160 there, you know? So, okay. That's kind of uh, interesting. So we can rely on that. And you drop the pressure down and femoral pressure is now down to the 95s and the patient, you know, the modeling goes away, patient warms up. So there's clearly cases where we can over vasoconstrict, you know, patients, uh, killing them with, uh, with good intentions and, and norepinephrine. Um, but there's that, that is that disconnect that, you know, measuring um, large artery pressure as a surrogate of tissue perfusion is, is not a, you know, it's not a perfect linear relationship. Okay, um, so a controversial note now, where does ultrasound sit? Um, well, I, you know, it would be nice to have, now a few years ago in one of the, um, the meetings that are arranged here, the, the CCUS meetings, had a guy from um, Germany come uh, and he was using, um, this, this, um, this software called the Pixel Flux. And off of, you know, ultrasound images, you could look at the, the you know, the, the Doppler, you know, the, the, the power Doppler flow and, and have some kind of algorithm to measure like tissue perfusion in small beds. And it was best in like kids. And they could look at the liver and the kidneys because obviously the kids are small, so the penetration is good. Um, and, and that was really interesting stuff because ultimately what we, you know, what we want to know is that, that tissue perfusion at the, the smallest level that we can, because that's what we're, well, that, that's where probably if there's a certain threshold defined, that would, it would be there rather than anywhere else. Um, but I don't think that we, we have that yet. Now, where does that, where does the ultrasound sit? I think it's, it's hard to use that currently as a monitor 
Um, but I think um, obviously when you're looking at your, you look at your Venus side and you look at your, your outflow side, then I think you can see where you ought to intervene. So it's more in that diagnostic uh, and directional of, of where your therapy is going to go. Certainly, I think there's been a shift in focus and paradigm in a way that, um, you know, the, the RV has always been the poor relation to the LV. Systolic function has always superseded diastolic dysfunction. Uh, the arterial, mean arterial pressure has always um, superseded the venous circulation. Uh, which leads us quite nicely to an area I know you're very interested in is the assessment of the venous circulation and venous congestion. Can you give a little bit of an overview about that? Sure. <clears throat> I mean, exactly like you just said, the venous side has largely been overlooked, I think, because, you know, it's, it's essentially an order of magnitude down more or less from the arterial side. So it's, it's neglected. But again, I think it comes back to the, the real concept of tissue perfusion pressure which is not really MAP minus CVP. It's really what's the pre-capillary arteriolar pressure minus what's the, the post-capillary venular pressure or the CVP, if you will, this has got to make its way down. Um, and if you start looking at those values, then all of a sudden venous pressures are not an order of magnitude down. Your typical pre-capillary is anywhere between like 25 and 40 and your normal CVP is under five. So you can see that mostly you don't have any almost resistance to outflow. It's kind of a, a waterfall thing. But then when you, if you've got a CVP up to 10, 15, then you're, you're, you're impairing a significant proportion of that tissue perfusion. Uh, and there's a lot of you know, debate as to you know, exactly where and some waterfall concepts and it wouldn't affect until it you know, would get to reach a certain point. That's a little hard, but we definitely know, like it or not, that you know, elevated central venous pressures lead to tissue congestion. So in and of itself, whether it's by impairing flow or increasing the distance that that oxygenation has to go through to get to tissues, whichever way it is, it isn't a good thing. So I think it's pretty clear that, uh, that that's, you know, not that we have to focus on that side more than we normally do. And you can't just dismiss the difference between a CVP of five and 15 is probably much more important than we typically think. Okay. And on that note, it leads us quite nicely to the, the drugs that you use, our vasoactive agents. Um, in one of the ESICM webinars, we, there was quite a lot of focus of noradrenaline, how people use it, when to add in second agents, so on and so forth. Tell us a bit about what you tend to do. Uh, yeah, I mean, I use norepinephrine as my first line fluid of choice for resuscitation. Mm -hmm. Oh, I mean, for drug, but also fluid. That was... Um, but um, I think uh, in, in cases where there's renal dysfunction, mm -hmm. I think adding in um, vasopressin uh, is, is, a, is a good thing, probably. Um, my friend Corbin, who's, a, who's really a point of care ultrasound, and it's particularly renal like magician, mm -hmm. um, has, has done a few cases where, you know, he's for the same blood pressure, but swapping over some vasopressin for some levofed has seen some increased, some improvements in and renal resistive index, which is to me like quite telling. Uh, and um, you know, I've, I've a spot here and there have gotten around to do some, but for some reason, lack of, you know, or probably some early Alzheimer's, I've not really managed to tighten up the game enough to go back and look at the right times and, and remeasure and things like that, or just I'm not able to generate the, the spectacular images that Corbin is. Um, but I think that's something that really 
needs to be looked at, you know, not in not in RCT stuff where the, the details are going to get lost in, but in really case by case C and then and then eventually do a, a study where you're really looking at, you know, real and resistive indices in a very methodical fashion with different pressors and different levels of renal dysfunction. I think there's there's potentially something there. It's a really interesting point that you talked about, because one of the questions from the webinar is, is a one size fits all because a general the general practice amongst contemporary European intensivists is that no adrenaline agreed is first line. If you're going to introduce a second agent, it looking like it's vasopressin, thurlipressin, that sort of thing. But what the what you've just talked about is this concept where the second agent is dependent on the patient in front of you, personalized to that patient using pokers. And that's a it's a very interesting concept and it's around gathering more information, having a really good look at that particular patient. If you were going to start um, thoroughly pressing, say, Phil, what sort of doses of NORAD would you add in thoroughly? Uh, I don't have thoroughly pressing. Never use Vas it. Vasopressin? Uh, yeah, usually, you know, we're, I usually go with essentially a fixed dose of, uh, of uh, at the 0.4 units. Okay. Um, and then, you know, whatever impact that has on on the, the hemodynamics, then you know decrease so you know norepinephrine accordingly. Um, for the obvious, uh, at least, uh, and I you know I've never seen it happen, so I don't know if they you know how true it is, but the, the concerns about you know gut vasoconstriction, ischemic gut, etc. So I use it as a fixed dose. Do you add in um, steroids at this stage or not? Yeah, I mean I, I do give usually give the steroid the, the fifty milligrams of of. Uh, of solicortaf. Okay, and when it comes to weaning these vasoactive drugs first, do you tend to wean off the, va the vasopressin first before the noradrenaline, or? I go. I generally like to get the uh, the the norepi off if I feel that the vasopressin has helped. Okay. I think, especially unless you know, unless I, I've got you know some cardiac systolic dysfunction where I think that the little bit of beta in there is is a good thing to have. I'm not hard and fast about it. Uh, I guess if I have renal dysfunction, I'd probably stick more with vasopressin, but it would be a combination of what's my, what are my kidneys doing? What is my heart doing? Uh, on to a sort of a related to vasoactive drug, and that's the area of fluid therapy. Um, always a contentious issue. Uh, we have Professor Monet, who is sort of championing the passive leg raise as a measure of fluid responsiveness. It seems to me, certainly reflecting on my own practice, that I've become more fluid conservative um, in my clinical practice. And I often, my trainees will often lament that I often say, um, just because the patient is fluid responsive doesn't mean that you need to give fluids. Thoughts, would you agree? Feel free to disagree. <laughs> I, I, I cannot agree more. Um, I mean, I think that, I, and I'll, I'll say it, it's, while it's not entirely true, I say that I really don't care about fluid responsiveness. It's not entirely true because I think it would be a terrible crime to give fluid to someone who's not fluid responsive. But the quest for fluid responsiveness almost inevitably ends up with the extermination of fluid responsiveness. And the only way you do that is to push your patient up along the Frank Starling curve to a place that is universally a pathological place to be. There's no one who's healthy that sits on there. And then if you look at, you know, if you try to piece the data together from everywhere you can, you know, the, the, the cardiovascular literature and renal literature, um, 
you know, when your CVPs are up above six to eight, which is below the targets of most fluid resuscitations, you don't do well. So, you know, I can't say that there's a target that is, you know, I can't say, well, you shouldn't be over six or you shouldn't be over eight or you shouldn't be over 10, but I'm, I'm pretty certain that you shouldn't be at 20 or at 15. Mm-hmm. And, um, and, and we know that those people don't do well. Now, all, all those big trials do not have, you know, the, the resolution to tease out these patients. Um, I don't think, I don't think these are, can be simply CVP. I think you need a little bit more than that, but I think that would be a good guide as well. And we do know from like the Boyd study that those patients in the upper, you know, tersiles, quartiles did not do well. Mm-hmm. Can you get away with it for a while? Probably. Um, but I, I think the problem with fluid responsiveness philosophy is that you eliminate it you give until it won't go up anymore. And that's mm-hmm. really a purely forward flow uh, centric view. And I think it's inherently and terribly flawed. Um, so I think, yeah, I think I like to keep my patient far away from that, from that flat curve. Um, not to say that I've never done it because, you know, sometimes, you know, between the rock and the hard place and the blood pressure that's, you know, clearly incompatible with survival, I'll, I'll take some congestion over that, but hopefully things can turn around. But, you know, in your sort of routine, you know, somewhat sick septic patient and your choice between, you know, fluids and pressors and inotropes, then I'm, I'm, I, I tend to keep patients on the, on the drier side and, and clearly in a place where the reason I don't test much for volume responsiveness is that my, my patients are almost always volume responsive because they're nowhere near that Frank Starling curve. If you look and you've got, you know, a RVC that's, you know, in short axis that is fluctuating quite a bit with respiratory variation, you've got, you know, all the other signs. I know that they're, and the, maybe I should preface that by saying that my algorithm is, my first question is, are they volume tolerant? Mm. And if they're not, then it doesn't matter if they're volume responsive or not, because they're not tolerant, I'm not giving them fluids. Um, that's always the primordial question after I've asked myself if they are, if I think that fluids will actually help them, you know, if they're, if they're hot and vasodilated, then I'm going to try to recruit that volume before I consider testing for volume responsiveness. So it comes down to that. Like I do ask the question subconsciously, but I rarely need that answer. If you get what I mean. Okay, cool. We've covered quite a lot already, Phil, but as a way of wrapping up then, what do you think are the big unanswered questions? What do we need to work on next in the five, 10 years of critical care when it comes to hemodynamic manipulation to our critically ill patient? Um, I think, you know, some degree of intravital microscopy, you know, measurement is going to be needed um, because I think we don't have that. I think I think we know that, you know, if you keep the patients too dry with too little cardiac output, they don't do well. If you keep them too full with, you know, whether it's with a lower or high cardiac output, they're not going to do well either. Um, and I think today we can fairly clearly, you know, distinguish those two groups, but there's a whole lot in the middle that we don't have, again, the resolution to really figure out, you know, I have a fellow come back, you know, and say, well, now my, you know, my, my CVP is up to 10 now, you know, if I go with fluids or pressors and I'd say, I don't really know, you know, 
I think I would do this, you know, but if someone said, well, I'm going to get 500 more, I don't think we have the resolution to really know that. Just stay away from the extremes. So I think that's where it is. And I've always said, if we could have a, you know, a mitochondrial happiness monitor, then, and then slap that, you know, across all major organs, and then we would, they would probably would figure out a threshold, you know, that if we go below a certain level of, you know, oxidative capabilities, then we're, we're there's no coming back from that. But we're, so I think that's, it has got to go to the micro circulation, to the tissular level, because using these macro things is, is really, really blunt tools to try to figure out something that's a lot more complex. And on that note, thank you very much, Phil, for taking the time to talk to us, share your ideas and what have you. Um, if any of our listeners have any comments, please feel free to contact us on social media. Um, and also please check out Phil's website, Thinking Critical Care, which is one of my go-to resources. Thank you very much, everyone, for listening. Thank you so much, Adrian.